there was a Dutchman wearing clogs <laughs> who came up to us and said, where have, you, where have you come from? One guest, 10 songs, 10 reasons. Music was my first love. On Radio Glamorgan. My guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love is a Cardiff-born baritone and founder member of the British Capella Vocal Quartet Cantable. His vocal training has been with the German baritone Gerhard Hirsch and later with Italian Laura Sarchi. Together with Cantable, he is the recipient of a Wave & Done All Music Award from John Dankworth and Cleo Lane for breaking down the barriers between musical genres. In 2022, Cantable celebrated 45 years since their formation at Cambridge University. My guest is Michael Stefan, whose CV reads almost identically with that of the group, with whom he has travelled extensively singing in an enormous variety of prestigious events and venues around the world. With much to talk about, we'll hear from Michael after his first choice, recorded during lockdown, which is the Morriston Orpheus Choir and Calon Michael Stefan, welcome to Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here. Tell me about your first choice and a really lovely version of Callan Lan. Well, yes, quite. I mean, uh, as people may think when they hear me speak, I don't particularly sound very Welsh, although I am Cardiff born and Cardiff bred. Um, you do that very but, well. <laughs> when I die, I'll be Cardiff dead. <laughs> but... Um, no, the the uh, but I you know, along with uh, I grew up in Cardiff, uh, went to Cardiff High School, and I I I, I learned my Welsh, uh, as did we all, and I really remember loving this hymn uh, whenever whenever it came along, and um, uh, as it happens, uh, you know I submitted my list of my ten songs in in. Uh, alphabetical order and so this happily came up as the first one uh the, the, there's so many things about this as i'm sitting to you talking from my house in in kingston upon thames which is just outside london and we've actually called the house calon lan um my my sister who still lives in Cardiff, she also went to Cardiff High School and she came away speaking fantastic Welsh and she, in fact she uses it in, for her job. And I learned languages actually, I went to, uh, to study languages at university, but my Welsh never really, you know, I never really got it into the system. Although I've sung Welsh and, you know, I can understand quite a lot of it, it's not sort of, doesn't come to me fluently. But I just love the sentiment of this and the when I went to choose the version uh, that I thought would be nice for you to play, um, I came across this, this one, which my sister had sent to me uh, during lockdown, much of which I, sp I actually spent um, with my, my wife in France, uh, where she's French. And it was so lovely because uh, I've done stuff with the Morriston Orpheus um, many, many years ago, but she, my sister is also a, a wonderful singer, and she's toured with the Morriston Orpheus, uh, indeed with Joy Amon Davis, who uh, was conducting that, that performance, uh, and indeed playing the piano. And it is a lockdown version, so you can see all uh, the, the choir, all beautifully turned out in their front rooms or whatever, in smoky, white 
tie, a white tuxedo and uh, evening dress. And it just, especially there in France, it really, it really moved me and brought me back to, to my roots. So the fact that that should happen as the sort of first song of my list, mm. alphabetically, I think was a, was a, ha- a, happy, a happy coincidence. Was there a music growing up at home? There wasn't a lot, actually. I mean, there was... Uh, my, I, my mother played the piano, but she hardly ever did play it. She was always too shy. My father had a good singing voice, uh, I always thought, and, and looking back, he did. But all I ever got was... Sort of, all we ever got was snippets of popular songs from the sort of 1940s and 50s, never sung all the way through. Uh, but they... They definitely thought that music was a thing that would be good for me and my two sisters to pursue. Mm. And I remember really, really not wanting uh, to practice the piano. I never practiced the piano. And pretty much kicking and screaming to sort of uh, do a bit of practice before the lesson the following, piano lesson the following day. And then at some point... I just sort of realised that I always wanted to be at the piano. So um, from relatively early on, I think I need, well, sort of, you know, in my teenage years, I thought that I might end up doing something with music going forward um, somehow. And then, in fact, I had uh, singing lessons from the local authority. What a great system. I don't know whether there's anything like that that still happens, but uh, there I was at Cardiff High School. I, so I played the piano and um, I would... It was announced that someone was coming from the local authority to see about giving music lessons at, uh, after school at the Welsh College of Music and Drama, which in those days was in the castle. And I uh, wanted to learn the double bass. And so I presented myself, and I probably played something on the piano uh, to show that I, you know, I had a bit of music. And then the teacher said, look, why don't you sing that thing that you did in the, in the school concert last week? So I did that, and they said, listen, you're not getting double bass lessons, but you're, going to get, you're getting singing lessons. So that was when I was in the lower sixth. I started off with a wonderful old Welsh singing teacher, Margaret Tan-Williams, who was very much a legend. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I still, because I now teach singing too, and I, I'm forever conjuring up images that she helped me with for, you know, how to do my consonants or, you know, um, how to approach a piece. And and much of what I know about singing, I learned there at the Welsh College of Music and Drama. And before you realised that you had this gift from God, were you listening like your contemporaries to the likes of Bowie and Roxy Music and T-Rex, or was it always operatic and classical? Oh, it was no, it was never operatic, really. And although... I suppose, I suppose I got interested in that. Uh, certainly, at university, I started to listen to that kind of stuff. No, I was in fact when I was thinking about this list, I was thinking about going. To, I used to go to the youth club, a youth club which is in Claude Road, um, not that far from the Globe. What, mm, what was the Globe Cinema? And you know, we used to go to the to the youth club, and then we go and get you know five of chips afterwards, and go back home on the bus. And that was all, you know, mid-1970s, I suppose, you know, 1973, 1974, Slade, and I don't know, all, all of that kind of stuff that, well, I, I, I was wanting to choose something from that era, and I just couldn't 
get it into my mm. <laughs> my ten my ten choices. So no, no, no. I, I listen to all that stuff along with everybody, everyone else. Now I need to confess, uh, Michael, at this stage that my knowledge of opera and classical lies somewhere between very little and non-existent. So you'll have to help me out with names of some of your choices. And your second comes from someone I do know, Dame Kiri Takanawa, uh, along with Anne Howes and Barbara Boney. Tell us about the piece you've chosen. Well, um, this, it's an unusual thing. And again, you know, we're launching in with quite sort of, um, well, you know, we have some Welsh and now this is German. Um, and it's the trio at the end of this opera called uh, Rosenkavalier, which is the the Knight of the Rose, um, and it's 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 just a, a thing that I have always loved. It's it's the this final trio is the sort of culmination of the whole thing, and it is well known as a kind of standalone experience, if you like. Three women singing together, um, and one of them in sort of well, pantomime, but operatic tradition too, is actually uh, playing a, uh, playing a, um, the part of a man. And they're just reflecting on love from their, from their different perspectives. One's a slightly older woman and has been in love with a man, but he's now in love with a younger woman there, and all three of them are singing together. And I can, I mean, I can tell you now or after it why it's special to me. Um, that's up to you, really. Should we listen to it first? Yeah, why not? remind us again what it's called. It's it's the final trio, um, and from the from De Rosen Cavalier, uh, the Knight of the Rose. I think that's how it's translated into English by Richard Strauss. <laughs> thing mm. uh, I mean I'll say immediately I you know I don't necessarily know exactly what they're saying um, but the and in fact the whole opera is quite sort of um, rambling if you like is if you don't if you haven't sort of listened to it a number of times uh, before sort of going to see it or, or you know it's one of those things you need to get used to uh, set in Vienna in the in the to the mid 1700s but uh, th there are various reasons why this this piece really speaks to me I mean it's mainly the music but as it happens um, with with my my group Cantabile um, very early on in I suppose and it must have been sort of early 1980s we were in Austria so this is set in Vienna as it happens we we're in Austria where we used to go regularly, have been regularly over the years, to Salzburg. And the person who was organising our concerts that particular time, uh, who's an Englishwoman actually, but had lived in Salzburg for, and still is there uh, for many, many years, um, she came back one morning uh, really very excited at having been to the presentation of the first uh, compact disc 
And uh, this was being, or the sort of announcement of this new technology, which was being espoused by Herbert von Karajan, this, you know, this major conductor, and who had great links himself with Salzburg. And, and in fact, there's, there was going to be, and there was for many years, a manufacturing plant in a little place just outside Salzburg. So um, this, the CD suddenly arrived on the scene. And as it happens, um, uh, I mean, it took a long time before I had a CD player, but two places that we were singing at, one was in Edinburgh and another one was in Holland, the people who were booking us there both had CD players and they both chose to show off their CD player mm. and their new technology. They both chose that trio. So I suppose we had been invited there after doing our concert and we we're having a glass of wine and everything felt good. And then suddenly there was this extraordinary huge sound, which you just heard. And I think that sort of imprinted itself on me, partly also reinfor reinforcing the fact that um, in my third year at university, I did, as, as all language students tend to do and other people do as well these days, which was to go off abroad, supposedly to perfect my French in this case, and uh, went to Paris for a week as to learn how to be an English assistant in a French school. And and while I was there, I thought, well, you know, why don't I go and see if I can get a ticket to the Paris Opera? And the Paris Opera was playing Rose and Cavalier, Chevalier de la Rose in French. And so I went along with somebody I didn't really know, um, but who was the same university as me. And uh, we just went along, we, we queued or whatever, and we got tickets and we got in and we saw this thing. And again, that was a sort of real kind of seminal experience for me to sit there and watch this extraordinary opera in the older opera house, or the only one as it was then in Paris, the Palais Garnier. And then the, the final part of this, which you, know, you'll, you will have edited most of this out by now, because I'm just rabbiting on. But the, <laughs> we, um, yeah, I'd love to warn well, you now, we don't edit nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're poor, you're poor listener. Um, but the, the, uh, it, I, the, through, through the opera, I said it's called The Night of the Roses, the night as in K-N-I-G-H-T. And this, there is this rose that gets presented and it's got its own sort of magical little kind of musical motif. But I got fixated on the actual stage prop, which was this silver rose. It's a silver rose. And, you know, it's just one of those things like when you're watching something on stage. You think, oh, I wonder how they do that. Ooh, you know, that's interesting. Oh, they just dropped something in there. Is somebody going to pick it up? That sort of thing. Mm. And I thought, what is that rose? You know, how have they made it? Is it made of metal? It looks like it might be made of metal in them. But, or is it a real one that's been sprayed silver? And they, do they go off stage and put it, put it in a bucket for the next night? All that sort of thing. And, and then many, many years later, uh, we can't argue doing a concert in Belgium. And uh, it was a sort of afternoon orchestral thing. We were doing our usual, generally sort of, you know, funny stuff. But they did do the duet which follows that trio. I mean, it's the final trio, and then it kind of peters out into the duet just between the two younger lovers. And there were two, so there were two singers there. And uh, so we watched the rehearsal on the evening. Uh, well, it's sort of later in the afternoon. It was an afternoon concert. 
Sure enough, there was a silver rose sitting in a bucket. Um, and so I went to the, the singers and I said, look, I've always been fascinated by the, the prop, you know. So there, sure enough, it is, it's made of metal, isn't it? But it's sitting in a kind of bucket as if it's, you know, as if it could be along with a, a load of other shrubs and, you know, what else, some dailies or whatever. It's oversized because it's operatic and it needs to be visible from the back of the auditorium. And I said, I just thought we'd been fascinated by this. And one of the singers said, well, as it happens, my mother was also an opera singer and she sang in the first performance of Der Rosen Cavalier, which was conducted by the composer, uh, Richard Strauss, Richard Strauss, Richard Strauss. And he gave her, as a souvenir of that, of that original production, he gave her the actual original Silver Rose and that's it, that's it in that wow. bucket. So there, I don't know, lots of lots of things that that piece brings to me. Yeah. And but the main thing is the glory of the glory of that this, that music. When you at the time that it was suggested to you about uh, singing lessons, w were you aware and were your family aware that there was some hidden talent there of singing? Um, I don't. I well. I suppose so. I, I'd I'd had a girlfriend who uh, at the uh, at Cardiff High School, uh, who was a little bit older than me, and she had been hang, having singing lessons uh, at the Welsh College of Music and Drama, and um, she just I said, so what do, you, what do you do in a singing lesson? I mean, I knew what I did in a piano lesson, but I thought. What do you do to sing? What, what can you do? And she gave me a few sort of pointers as to things that you do. Um, and and so I, in the choir at school, I just would sort of try these out and see, you know, that, that makes a difference. Things like, you know, you keep, it's sort of obvious in a way, but you mm. keep your throat open when you sing, you know, you try not to... to to get a sort of shallow sound. And I certainly thought, oh, yeah, I can make some... I've got some quite nice notes here. You know, that sounds quite good. Um, but, I mean, it was... It was. It didn't have... I didn't have very many of those notes. <laughs> I don't have very many more now, actually. But the... Um, uh, yeah, and I just... So, so, I mean, you know, my mum liked to hear me sing stuff because she was my mum. Yeah. So, but the, that, was, that was no kind of barometer, really. Um, and as well as that then, one teacher that you mentioned, uh, was there great encouragement in school? There was encouragement in school, um, yes. And in fact, I did in the, in the final year. I sang um, a, the lead in Carousel, um, you know, the Rodgers and Hammerstein yeah, yeah. musical, Billy Bigelow. And and it was that really. We had a fantastic drama teacher at Cardiff High School called Carl, Carl Palmer. Palmer. Yeah, absolutely. The world famous Ex Carl Palmer. Yeah, he and well as as well he should be because he really inspired so many people to go and not have a proper career <laughs> like <laughs> me. But I I think we did one of the things at school was in that Christmas term. We, the whole school would be involved in doing the musicals. So, I mean, one year it was the um, the King and I, and in fact, that girl Sally Nicholas that I was telling you about, um, who's my you know my great love at the time, uh, I met. She was the lead in, the, you know, I was younger then in the King and I, and that was the 
uh, that was the thing that started to sort of bite me, if you like, in getting the theatre bug. But the whole school would be involved. So, I mean, not just performers, but there'd be people backstage, you know, costume makers. The physics department would be there, sort of making sure the lighting was working. And obviously the music department, you know, the orchestra. And it was a real sort of feeling of joint project and, 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 a, and a sort of um, unified purpose, which was nothing to do with, you know, learning what you needed to do, learn for your your exams mm. but was really good for the soul and so yes in my last year I did Billy Bigelow and by then I thought mm, yeah I you know I could really this this sounds this could be a good life actually I thought well it sounds, you know, it sounds like you can travel you could go to different places you know um, yeah why not that could be good so I suppose I I thought I I felt I might be able to do it and in fact as, as, you, as you mentioned it in that final year, we got a new music teacher. The music department was already great. We got a new music teacher called Kate Smith, who was um, married to uh, Julian Smith, the, the new repetiteur who just arrived at Welsh National Opera. And they really did know about, but um, uh, particularly Julian, knew what was required, what would be a good good path to follow or a bad path to follow, whether one would get burned up by trying to sing certain things when you're too young and that sort of thing. And they they advised me a bit. I remember they kindly had me down uh, for for an evening meal um, at their house in Pont Cana. And uh, I sang for Julian and he said, right, OK. And he knew I was going up to, to university and he said, look, you know, try to avoid this kind of thing. Try to do a bit, bit of this if you get a chance, and that sort of. Oh, that's my phone. Sorry, making hmm. ping before somebody thinks that some machine's not behaving itself. Um, yeah, and so I did. I certainly got some encouragement. Now, many school. of the seventy-plus guests that have appeared on this series have had among their ten choices what I would call a slightly left-field choice, something I wasn't really expecting. Uh, and yours is up next. Tell me about Jerry Keller's "Here Comes Summer." Well, you know, I'm a real sucker for rock and roll, and this particular piece, um, it, it mainly reminds me of being in the car with my two fantastic children who would never let me suggest anything that, that, might, that I thought they might like to listen to once they'd got their own favourite playlist, then, you know, it would just be that. And this is one of the great, you know, summery... Well, here comes summer. Well, here comes summertime at last. Michael Stefan's third choice on this edition of music was my first love from Jerry Keller. Now, you read uh, Modern and Medieval Languages at Cambridge. Uh, both Oxford and Cambridge are well known for entertainment, especially through the footlights. So let's go back to the very beginning. How did Cantable come about? Well... Um, yeah, you've done your research. I'm getting a bit frightened now. Uh, <laughs> you, well, you, sh you the, should hear the things that I'm not mentioning that it's been suggested to me yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah, so, well, yeah, yeah, so dear. Well, well, let's stick to the script now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, um, yes, well, funnily enough, uh, some of the advice that I was given that I mentioned before by Julian Smith and Kate, his wife, both of whom had been, to, who'd been at, Cambridge, was to avoid 
doing too much singing of the sort of chapel choir tradition. Uh, if I was wanting to go and sort of exploit what they thought might be um, a voice that could be used for opera um, subsequently, and they they just cautioned me against th that kind of singing, that sort of college chapel uh, mm. singing, that uh, is actually sounds so so very very beautiful, and so I. I wasn't. I did get involved in things in Cambridge, and I sang in the big university choir, but I wasn't doing a lot. Um, although I'd expected to really sort of be up to my neck in in just not. Well, I certainly wasn't doing very much studying, but I was assuming the rest of it would all be music and that sort of thing. And then I saw uh, an an um, a posting for an audition for a musical. And uh, I went along and I got the part. And it was a very, at a time when most of the theatre, kind of student theatre, I'm sure it's the same, was quite sort of hard-hitting and edgy and maybe political and um, certainly not kitsch. Uh, this thing was very self-conscious, uh, well, not self-conscious, deliberately is what I'm trying to say, kitsch. Yeah. And it was written by a guy called Bob Bryan and uh, Richard Turner. Richard Turner went on to work on things like Spitting Image, I think. But um, Bob was in charge of the music, and it was it was called Charlotte's Hotel, and it was about a, a barbershop, four-part group, that um, go back to a hotel run by one of their university friends, and the hotel has fallen on hard times and this group has become very famous so they go back to the hotel and they give a little concert and that was the idea of it and it just somehow we had a run of about a week I suppose at the um, ADC which is the Footlight sort of theatre there in in Cambridge and it was a, it was a great great success it was great fun it was such a simple idea and uh, in sort of true B-movie fashion, the, the original upper voice, so counted the, the top voice of a barbershop, in a barbershop quartet, the sound of the barbershop quartet, one of, the, one of the things that sort of makes it sound like a barbershop quartet is that the melody, instead of being sung by the top voice, which you might expect in any other vocal quartet, maybe if it, you, know, you had a soprano on the top, uh, the, it'd be the soprano singing the top line. In a barbershop group, it's the second voice down, who's the lead tenor. And so the top voice is a high tenor or, or can be like a male alto or falsettist, counter tenor, as people might call, call them. And that was what Bob was. But Bob was the musical director. And there was another guy called Stevie, who was going to? Who was we rehearsing with to be the top voice? And then, in, as I say, in true B movie fashion, Stevie sort of dropped out through illness, and Bob had to step in. And and Bob was fantastic, and so the group really was. It sounded really good. It's you know one of those accidents that the we four mm. just sort of sounded good, and we went then went up to the Edinburgh Fringe that year, and or maybe yes we did. And then, in fact, the following year was the year I went off to to France for my year year abroad, 
And the guys, bless them, kept my, well, they, they got this fantastic uh, replacement for me. I thought they were never going to want me back again. But he had other things in mind for his future. And in fact, he's now a real major leading kind of enzymologist, if that's the word. With his, he has had his own laboratories in France, bizarrely, but also in America. He's, that's where he is now. And um, so, so my place was kept warm for me while I was away, and uh, and the group then sort of it just people started offering us money for doing things that we just loved doing, and we thought, mm, this could be this could be good. Let's see what happens with this if we just sort of stick with it, and um, and see where it goes. And we just do it for as long as it's fun, and and you know it seems it seems to be. So, able to sustain us and one of the four of us Nick his name was uh, was studying medicine so he obviously had longer before he completed his studies so for a number of years while we'd finished the other three of us in fact the, the other two had finished before me because I'd been delayed by my year abroad and we sort of cox and box, and we managed to get gigs here and there uh, while Nick was still studying medicine. And then when he finished, which was February 1982, we got going in February 1977. And he eventually finished in February 1982, five years later. And that's where we sort of said, oh, well, we're, we're now going to do this to the exclusion of all other things. We'll turn down other possibilities and see where it goes. And in fact, that year do I mean that year beginning of the following year we did have a really big break which was that we um, we recorded um, a number of short television programs uh, which was a new idea for television south which was to record in one day they had lots of different musical acts and we were the first in to try to record sort of, you know, half a dozen programmes or something in one day, a quarter of an hour programmes. And we went back with the producer afterwards from Maidstone back to London in his car, and he's, he had a kind of video with the, with the rushes of uh, the, the programmes that we recorded. He said, listen, let's, uh, let's stop in at a friend of mine uh, as we drive back through London. We'll just go in and we'll... we'll have a look and see what it looks like. So we sort of crashed in on, on this poor woman uh, who turned out to be Liz Emanuel, as in Liz and David Emanuel, who had designed, designed yeah, the, dress. The, the dress for the late um, Princess of Wales. And so she, this, this sort of larger-than-life producer said, hello, Liz, we're coming in. We just want to borrow your video recorder, for, uh, your video player for a while and your telly. And so she sort of, go make a cup of tea, something. And she kindly sort of hosted us while we watched our hour's worth or hour and a half's worth of work from the day. And she said, listen, I'd really like to organise a party where you guys could sing. And so that happened. And at that party, who, what should happen? But Tim Rice and Cameron McIntosh came up to us and said, have you guys got, a, got equity cards? Uh, which, if you remember, it was a sort of the kind of holy grail to manage. It was a kind of catch-22. You had to have an equity card to be able to perform on stage because everything was unionised throughout the entertainment but industry. But you couldn't perform unless you had one. 
Exactly so. <laughs> but 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 our sort of classical singery thing was a little bit wasn't a loophole, but it was a bit of a grey area. So we did have ethnic guards. And they said, because we're looking for a four-part group exactly like you to go into a musical um, in the West End. In fact, the, the original idea was it was going to reopen the recently refurbished old Vic Theatre, which had been dark for a number of years. And it had been re- restored in all its glory. And so um, that it was the hope was then it would do a short run at the Old Vic, and then transfer into the West End, which is what happened. So it was written by Tim Rice. It was the first thing he'd done since Evita. Uh, words by Tim Rice, music by a wonderful, versatile uh, composer who sadly is no longer with us, called Stephen Oliver. And Stephen had become, uh, had become I mean, he was classical, classically trained, and he was writing operas, uh, but he also had done the incidental music for the BBC's Lord of the Rings, which was a hugely popular thing in the early 1980s, and also Nicholas Nickleby, which the National Theatre had a great success with, and he had written the music for that. So he'd become to prominence. Clearly he could turn his hand to any kind of style. And the thing was called Blondor, uh, which was the... It was all about the, the legend, which I knew nothing about at the time, of Blondell... Uh, it had to be called Blondel to rhyme with Fondle, <laughs> but but it um, it was uh, Blondel was this minstrel. Do you know this story? Who who when Richard the Lionheart was uh, captured for ransom uh, on his way back from the Crusades, supposedly Blondel went sort of faithful musician to the king, went all around Europe strumming his loot under different sort of potential castle, castles where his master might be held. And sure enough, the lead, as so the legend goes, you know, at one point Richard pops his head out from a turret and says, Blondel, you're down there. Yes, you found me. Right. And then he get, the ransom is paid and he comes back and evil brother John, who's just about to take the throne, uh, is, is thwarted in his plan to become king. And so that was a story. That was the story, and we were a quartet of monks that sort of um, act like a bit like a Greek chorus. So we would come on and we would present the scene, uh, say this is what's happening now, and and so we we sang some. I mean, this this has always been our thing. We 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 were trained as classical singers, so we could do some classical things, but a lot of it was pretty rocky. I mean, in fact, we were we called it monk rock. Because it was, um, you know, a bit of bit of bit of monk and a bit of rock, <laughs> <laughs> and that that's that really that really then put us on to the map, if you like. Although we had been working before then, and we'd been working quite a bit in, in Europe already by then, but that was what really made you know, 1983 to 84, um, we we did about needed well 399 performances of wow. that show eight shows a week the west end no, the classic west ends eight shows a week we never were given a holiday because they weren't able to replace us we there were a couple of people who were who learned sort of understudy roles but we're, nobody actually could replace us as a, as a group so along with other things that year because we also had cabarets and, and recordings and 
things. We did something like 434 performances in the year, in 360, in 300, oh well, yeah, in the year. But as a group, you were used to that because, of course, to go back to what you said at the beginning, Cantable were born from a show. Exactly right. And that's what made us different. As it happens, I was talking about the um, the other three, the, the, the um, not singing in chapel choir too much. My other three esteemed original colleagues had all great experience in that field. And I learned an awful lot from them about just how to be the precision, the precision required and attention to detail and that sort of thing. But the, the other group that we always had grown up uh, looking up to and admired enormously were the King Singers. Oh, I remember them very who, There were well. six of them. But same kind of thing, they'd been at Cambridge and they'd sort of, you know, they did light stuff as well. But where we were really quite different is where they had come up th- through the chapel thing. We had come up through review. And in fact, we were part of the footlights. I say we, in the year that I was in France, the group was part of the Footlights pantomime. And in fact, Bob, the um, infamous Bob, who started, who, you know, who got, put this whole thing together, he was one of the sort of elite half dozen actual Footlighters for the review in 1978, I suppose, that, you know, that they, the Footlights review goes to the Edinburgh Fringe and it goes to various other places. And so, yes, we had that review side in our blood, really. And and we and it's always been, you know, since then we really, 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 really have sung all kinds of stuff, all kinds of styles, and that's what we love. You know, that's that's mm. been our sort of raison d'être. We'll talk more shortly, but let's move on to your fourth choice from Michael Legrand and the Flemish Radio Orchestra. Tell us about this one. Yeah. Do you want me to tell yeah, you about yeah. it? Yeah, well, briefly, um, as it happens, Alphabetical Fate has two Frenchy things, because Michel Legrand, great uh, composer of film music, wonderful um, standalone hits, The Summer of 42, um, I, well, this is I Will Wait For You, um, What Are You Doing the Rest? Oh, no, maybe that isn't him. Yes, it is. What Are You Doing the Rest of Your Life? Lots of real great sort of standalone hits. And this, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, is this extraordinary uh, through-sung movie where it's all sung, even things like, you know, uh, what are you having for breakfast today, all that kind of mundane stuff. But the big, sweeping, fantastic love melody uh, is this. And in looking, I didn't want to just get a load of French... So this is just him conducting a wonderful, wonderful uh, sort of over, overwhelming uh, arrangement for this huge orchestra. I, I, I hope everyone enjoys it. Your next choice, Michael, is from someone making his second appearance on this fifth series of music. It was my first love, Care Of, a contemporary of yours, Virginia Bailey, and that's oh, yes. Jacques Brel. Tell me about the song you've chosen. Well, um, this is another extraordinary thing. <clears throat> uh, French, I mean, he's Belgian, actually. He was Belgian, um, but the French 
I think, rightly claim him as a sort of honorary Parisian. Uh, and this song, again, it's one of those things you don't really need to understand the French because you'll soon get the feeling of it. Uh, and in fact, it's pretty pretty difficult to understand even if you've got the words in mm. front of you. Um, it is called La Valse à Mille Temps, which means the waltz uh, with a, a sort of with a thousand beats, if you like. And it's the, this means the whole Jacques Brel thing means quite a lot to me because um, we, one of the things that we've done in Cantabri uh, is we've worked quite a lot in Belgium and our sort of, I suppose, our first big entry into Belgium was taking part in a competition. It's the only time we've ever done that. And we won this competition. It was a Eurovision cabaret prize. So it was Eurovision with all that... Ba, 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 da, ba, 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 all of that stuff mm -hmm. at the beginning with the logo and everything. It was just that Britain didn't take a feed from this. But it was all the other main European countries. And uh, each... It was a, it took place took place over about a week, with um, in a casino in Belgium, uh, where each evening uh, somebody well known from each country would present some new acts to the Belgian public, and in our case it was um, uh, Helen Shapiro, uh, whom we didn't know, but we were sort of teamed up with her, and she presented us, and we won the whole thing. And uh, as it happens, we did a piece of Jacques Brel, uh, not this one, as one of our songs. And we didn't know this at all, but the chairman of the panel of juries was Jacques Brel's widow. So there was a sort of, not quite a personal connection, but that sort of feeds into that story of ours. Anyway, this song he wrote supposedly, or he got the idea as he went on an ever more hectic car journey in Morocco, sort of going faster and faster and faster, as you can well imagine when you listen to it. You're listening to another edition of Radio Glamorgan's Music. It was my first, though, with Cardiff-born baritone Michael Stefan choosing ten of his favourite tracks. Gershwin's opera uh, Porgy and Bess, uh, played by Oscar Peterson, just the most fantastic thing. Um, ha, I adore Oscar Peterson, and there's so many tracks that I could have chosen. It, it, this particular album that I got that includes that one uh, <laughs> has a special memory for me uh, one of the great joys that Cantabile has, has had over many years has been uh, a lot of travel, uh, including in North America. We've been to every state except two, uh, but also we've done a lot of work in Canada, uh, especially in Quebec, uh, where we must have given more than 100 concerts uh, in French, uh, presenting them in French. 
uh, in theatres where um, that's their sort of remit, a bit like sort of appearing on S4C, uh, Espedwarek. Uh, you know, you have to speak, you have to be speaking Welsh, as we indeed have done. And in fact, I was going to say about I Will Wait For You, the Michel Legrand, it brought back a memory of singing that on as guests of Beverly Humphreys on a on a on an, on an S4C program broadcast from uh, Port Myrian, and we, we, we ev- almost every time anyone sa- sang, be it Beverly or us, the the um, the peacocks all <laughs> 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 screech. But anyway, back to this plot. Um, so uh, yes, yeah, presenting in French in in Canada in Quebec. And one of the most magical, I and mean, there are lots of fantastic parts of Canada, as you can imagine. But there's a very special place called Les Îles de la Madeleine, which are off the Atlantic coast. Uh, and they're these tiny little islands with um, a tiny little theatre that used to be some sort of, I think, sort of almost not quite a life, not quite a lifeboat station, but but a, a sort of winching uh, shed to, to winch. Uh, boats up the beach and one we've been there twice uh, and the second time we were staying a, uh, in a sort of kind of guest house uh, a little bit out of the main little town and I'd stayed in uh, a little bit later than the other guys and got um, we were I had the car and the other guys had walked back so I drove the car back I don't know whether it was because I was after 11 or after midnight or whatever, but it was closed. It was totally shut. And there was no way of raising the guys. And so I thought, right, well, I'm going to have to spend the night in the car. But it was a fa- one of these wonderful American, really luxurious <laughs> rent- rental cars. Very, very comfortable. Plenty of space. All the seats went back, heated seats, all the rest. And I thought, right, I'm just going to put on Oscar Peterson. So I just played... Oscar Peterson all through the night and so I have a great memory of that so when I came I didn't know didn't know which track to choose we have a a tenuous uh, connection with Gershwin in that we were involved in recording a piece of music for Gershwin's nephew the the son of Gershwin's sister who was called Leopold Godofsky III uh, and he came over from New York he'd written a piece that we recorded for him so we had that, there's that connection with that piece. But as, as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, we're, we're recording this uh, on the day before the, the bank holiday for the late Queen's uh, funeral. And uh, it just struck me that, of course, Bess, it's Paul William Bess, but of course, Queen Bess, the first Queen Bess was the first Queen Elizabeth. So that I just thought, mm, yeah, that's why not, why not have nice. this thing? Where's, where's my Bess? You know, she's gone. So uh, yeah, what a what an amazing talent, Oscar Peterson. Yeah, uh, incredible talent, and just a, you can tell by that piece of beautiful piano player. Uh, the lovely sound of a cantable featuring my guest Michael Stefan. I had to put a bit in there. Uh, well, that was a bit of a surprise, a bit of yeah. shock. <laughs> Everyone's turned off now. <laughs> you. Um, <laughs> You mentioned earlier that the group turned professional in, uh, around 1982. A big call to make to arguably turn you back on years of education and a top university and move into a very fickle and unforgiving industry. Did you have, did it take a lot of thought? 
And a lot of discussion didn't No, it, it didn't really. I suppose, I suppose the bottom line was that we all probably felt that we would manage to find something if push came to shove. Mm. And there was always this thought, particularly, we, we knew that it was the most likely f- person to leave first would be Nick, the doctor. Um, and that is indeed what, he ha- what, what happened. Uh, because he felt the pull of medicine having put in such a lot of you know yeah. years of study and uh, so he left at the end of 1986 uh, so that was that was really quite a wrench uh, although he was admirably re- replaced by somebody that I had known at the Welsh College of Music and Drama Paul Hull um, from the Ronza and uh, with a similar a similarly eclectic taste in music with beautiful tenor voice. And he, uh, I mean, it was thanks to him, although he wasn't a Welsh speaker, uh, um, well, not, not a, a, a maternal tongue, but he, uh, he, spoke, he spoke an amount of Welsh. And it was thanks to that and, and my understanding of Welsh and being able to get by uh, that meant that we were able to do uh, this quite big, series back in the early 90s um, for S4C with Rebecca Evans, who I know has been another of your guests. She has been, yeah. yeah. Uh, called Encore, which was fantastic because we had a... It was at a time when all the... Everywhere else, light entertainment was being squeezed. And there was still the sort of um, budget for pr- a proper, you know, shooting on location. We went to Salzburg, funnily enough, to do... Uh, a Christmas special, and there was an orchestra there at the studios up at HTV. Uh, so that was Paul, and Paul was with us for 12 years. But to go back to your question, no, I suppose, uh, certainly I, in knowing that I wanted to be a singer, that sort of cemented me in my decision to to do languages at university, partly because they were going to help with what I hoped at the time might be an operatic path, but also because it was just something else. It wasn't just music. So, I, you know, it was something else that I somehow could fall back on, although mm. I, I don't know quite how that would have been, but it just would have been a different string. It was a different string to my bow. One of your uh, biggest, uh, in inverted commas, TV breaks uh, came with just a little help from an old school friend who uh, was a recent guest on Music Was My First Love, and so happens to be my brother Harvey, um, and that was an appearance on Parkinson. <laughs> yes. Yes, that was indeed, and it was a fantastic um, opportunity opportunity for us. Um, absolutely, it was really quite early on, and uh, and not only was it great that we did that show. There was I now can't remember the exact sequence. He may well remember it, but we actually went twice. We were, were only on once, and I think there was something that happened that stopped us from being able to appear on the first one. Some, I don't know whether it was some world event or whether there was a star that came in from America and it was at the short notice only, we, we didn't do it. But I think on that programme, while we were there, I think that was where Kenneth Williams uh, did his tour de force, which oh, was this yeah. sort of French thing called Crepes Cisette. Yeah, which yeah the, I remember. And afterwards we went to him, we said, listen... We, you know, that's absolutely our sort of thing. You know, it's a string. It's all the kind of French words and phrases yeah. that British people use, strung together in a, in a melody. Um, and 
he said, we said, you know, is there any chance that we might be able to sort of appropriate, appropriate it from you? And he said, well, I nicked it off someone in the first place. <laughs> so he said, I'm, ha- I'm happy to pass on stolen goods. And he actually <laughs> delivered it. He delivered it from his, where he lived in just near Portland Place. He delivered it to where uh, Bob, of whom I've spoken, yeah. uh, was living with, at, at the time with his parents, very, very close to them, Devonshire Close. And one evening, there was Kenneth Williams with an envelope in his hand, uh, delivering, uh, you know, on his promise and delivering mm. the song. And he said, the good thing about this, guys, is he said, uh, the, when this was sent to me by somebody I'd never been able to track down, he said it, it needed to be sung to the tune of Sorrent- Come Back to Sorrento. And he said, I never knew that, so I only ever did it to, uh, should old acquaintance be, you know, old Lang Syne. Yeah. Uh, but yes, that was a fantastic opportunity for us. And, and in fact, not that long ago, um, but I bumped into, well, M- Michael Parkinson at a, uh, at a thing we did for the BBC at Henley Festival, which by then was being run by my erstwhile colleague in that, of, in that original lineup, Stuart Collins. But this was a BBC Friday Night's Music Night or something similar that was yeah. being broadcast from... Uh, Henley Festival and Michael Parkinson was on it and um, and he uh, you know we said you may not remember he said I do remember he said particularly because we're just going through all the old programs and, and digitizing them and he said I'd be delighted to send you a copy which he did mm-hmm. so I'm, I, I, I must make sure that that gets I think Harvey is there with a credit rolling away at the bottom yeah. so I must um, have him to thank for flagging us up to to the Parkinson team, certainly, yeah. You, you've, you've mentioned briefly in this section, in the last uh, 45 years, there's been a number of personnel changes with Cantabile, but you still made, you still remained. Any reason why, and have you ever, have you ever come close to leaving, to moving on? I haven't really, no. I mean, the... I don't know why. As I said, the original kind of ethic behind it was while we have fun and it can still sustain us, you know, let's keep doing it. And I I just love it. I still love it. You know, I'm very much the granddad now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I make sure I keep my voice in, in good shape. And, and I have been doing more singing, singing, teaching in recent years, which has actually helped me a lot. To, with my own, you know, I think my voice has, has improved for having to think about other people's uh, problems or the things they do well that I think, well, how can he do that and I can't do that? And, uh, you know, sort of, uh, that's helped me a lot. But yes, it's been difficult with, with changes. My, my Stuart, whom I just mentioned, uh, who he, he left in the early 90s, uh, in 1991, and he was replaced by Mark, um, and Mark has been with me with with us ever since. So that's quite a long time. Mm. And then, as it happens, um, uh, the countertenor, uh, who's in the current lineup, Billy, was with us uh, for five years back in the early nineties. He was part of that uh, the lineup that did the S four C series encore. And so three three quarters of the group is the same as it was in the early 90s. And then the, the fourth member currently, Chris, has been with us, well, he first sang with us in 2012, and we had a, a tour of the, the States where 
the the other tenor at the time wasn't able to come because his wife was just about to give birth to their their first child and he didn't want to leave her behind and um uh and so chris then joined us full time in 2015 so we're pretty stable you know we've been, this ensemble's been pretty solid for mm. this this configuration for quite some time now tell me about your next choice uh, michael conducted by nigel short the bluebird well funnily enough yeah in this recording, quite by chance, is one of our former members, Jer Jeremy Budd. And it, totally by chance, I just thought, I must find a recording of this. And I think I can't imagine this being done any better. As it happens, it's being conducted by Nigel Short, who, as it happens, produced one of our albums. We did an album called Songs of Cricket. And he was the producer on that. He's a former King singer, so it shows you know it's a small world. Yeah. But um, this is indeed in that chapel type tradition. This is Charles Villiers Stanford, the composer, um, the turn of the twentieth century. It's just the most exquisite piece, and it, it it I remember it at Cambridge. I heard it being performed by people, the choir on punts in a particular sort of area that it's possible for the punts to be still and to deliver this song about a bird flying over a lake. And as it happens, uh, I've done a lot of that as it, as it happens, hmm. but there, there are the, all of these are, are sort of coincidences, happy coincidences. Um, when my wife Brigitte and I had a, a kind of blessing of our marriage in France uh, only back in 2019 uh, a number of old lags singers came over enough to, to for us to have a bit of singing at the wedding uh, well that did the blessing and uh, this was one of the pieces we chose it's called the bluebird and um, well I, I, if people haven't heard it before I'm sure they will love it Listening to music was my first love with baritone and founder member of Cantabile, Michael Stefan, choosing 10 of his favourite songs. I want to go back back a little bit, if I may. After Cambridge, uh, as you mentioned, you went to the Welsh College of Music and Drama and subsequently had vocal training with the German baritone Gerhard Husch um, and Italian uh, teacher Laura Sarci, if I'm saying that right. Um, yeah, I yeah. would guess that they were both hard taskmasters and perfectionists. Well, um Absolutely right. Yes, indeed, they were. Yes, I had. What happened was, I, um, I'd had my lessons, uh, uh, you know, after school, when I was seventeen and eighteen. Then I went off to university, and after that, I went off uh, with a friend uh, to Spain because I thought, well, I'm meant to be a linguist. I speak some French and some German, but you know. I need to learn another language. So we went off to Spain. And it, it sort of... I ended up coming back around about the Christmas of... So we'd gone off it's probably around about this time of year, September time, anyway, uh, I should say, in 
whatever the year that was, and I came back. And I think it was after that that we had the Parkinson show. And so I was sort of in between times, in the middle of an academic year, some people had gone on to music college and that sort of thing. And I went to see the principal of the Welsh College of Music and Drama, who had given me some advice when I had a little wobbly moment at Cambridge in my first year, because having been brought up in uh, co-educational, you know, Cardiff High and two lovely sisters at home, I was in this relentlessly male environment in Cambridge, which and I it just it didn't suit me, and part of me thought. Mm, why don't I just sort of leave? And he said, no, stick it out. And he said, if you ever need any advice or help in the future, come back. Um, and I went back to see Raymond Williams and, and, he, Raymond Edwards, and he was completely brilliant. And he said, look, if you would like to just join the, the rest of the postgraduate course, even though you're in the middle of the year, you know, you can do that. And you have lessons with your old teacher, Margaret Tan Williams. And you'll have coaching from John Samuel, who is Stuart Burroughs's uh, co- um, p- pianist and it was just fantastic and I didn't have to do any exams and so I went to all the lectures and I had a lovely time and from there I then went on to do a few courses at, at what's known as the Britain Peers School of Advanced Musical Studies and it was there that I uh, had started to have lessons with this uh, with, with the, well, the main man for one of those courses Gerhard Husch and it was while I was at Welsh College of Music and Drama that Laura Sarty came to do masterclasses and I just thought she was fantastic uh, because she had a different thing to say about each of the many pupils, many singers that had 10 minutes each with her. And she just put her finger on, gave somebody a perfect tip. Each person was a different thing. And so I went to her and uh, for, for many years. I had lessons with her for many years. And yes, they were pretty... They were pretty uh, I don't want to say demanding, but it's good to work with people who want who want the best possible results. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Sir Tim Rice earlier. He's been a, a big supporter of Cantabile, hasn't he? Saying uh, once that you were his favourite vocal group. We have been in constant contact with Tim ever since that in the, back in the mid early nineteen eighties, nineteen eighty three with Blondel. There have been so many things that he has so kindly asked us to be involved with, be it uh, little recordings, private parties. We made a single with him of Wandering Star, the Lee Marvin right, thing, yeah. uh, B-side, Man from Laramie, song, song that Jimmy Young recorded back in the 1950s. Um, all sorts of stuff. We've sung for his cricket club. We sang when he was president of Lords. We sang at uh, in the long room at, at Lords on a number of occasions. More recently, he's been the president of the London London Library, uh, and we've sung at events there. Uh, we've sung his lyrics. He's written songs that, uh, that only you know specifically for events that we've been involved with. He's been just the most fantastic support. And uh, yes, that was a really goodness me, what a you know that particular day when we first sang at that party, and Tim Rice happened to be there. It, I think a lot of a lot of artists have that story. There's something that just sort of set them off in the on the right path. Oh. And certainly, uh, our relationship with Tim Rice has been uh, something for which we all have you know counted our blessings over the years.
and you've performed for the late Queen and indeed her mother. Yes, we we was we were in the, one of the concerts for the uh, Golden Jubilee at Buckingham Palace, and I've perf- and and the, and the Queen Mother came to the opening of Blondel, and also I did one of the few other things I've done along the way. As you say, my CV reads pretty much identically with that of the of the group for obvious reasons, but I did uh, perform in an opera to open a, a theatre at, a, at St Paul's Girls' School here in London. And the Queen Mum uh, was at that opening as well. Um, and you mentioned the Wavendon All Music Award, yeah. uh, which um, we were very honoured to receive because it's all about that thing of, you know, breaking down those barriers in uh, between different styles and genres and getting rid of those uh, rather false categorizations and uh, that was Princess Margaret was um, we we were presented with, with that by Princess Margaret yeah your eighth choice uh, tonight is from the comedian harmonist who am I correct in saying performed with you during your first tour of Austria no they the they were nearly there we were we were made aware of this group when we went first time to Austria and people said well, you're like the comedian harmonist and we said well who the heck are they and they turned out to be really the most influential group uh, on the way that Cantabile has done stuff because they were a German group around in the 1920s into the early 1930s there were more of them there five singers and a pianist we some we often uh, perform with the pianist actually but you know the, we're really just the four of us and they were in their day as famous in Germany and as rich relative to the average man as you know the Beatles were in the 1960s in the UK and three of the members of the, the, the sex set were Jewish and that's what sort of put paid to them the arrival of Hitler in the early 1930s but they had this fantastically wide repertoire. They did comedy songs. They did songs from the movies of their time. They did, they did the German folk song heritage. They did classical stuff. And the, the piece I've chosen is it, they, did, they did a number of pieces where they imitate musical instruments. So you've got to bear in mind this is back in the this is the um, one of the two splinter groups that came that formed after they were banned in Germany and one went all over the world uh, touring and so you've got to bear in mind that this is six people one take around a mic and I've chosen it because it's the overture to Barbara Seville which of course is an opera by Rossini and that's an opera that I got to know very very well at the new theatre in Cardiff where I used to tear tickets Hmm. Um, for when you know in that time when I was uh, probably in in sort of holidays or whatever um, when I was down from university and wanting to learn as much about music as possible so I was one of those ushers and I remember Thomas Allen the baritone who was one of the great um, baritones singing the, the role of Figaro who is the Barb of Seville, and so it's a dear to dear to my heart. But it's particularly the comedian harmonist, and it, it, I think people will be astonished by this. It's so funny and brilliantly done, such ac- so accurate and 
and fun, just fun. Brilliant was that? It's phenomenal, isn't, isn't it? it? Just yeah, isn't it just? We we've done we we've made two CDs of their material of the, the material of the Queen and the Harmless, and also uh, amazingly because for, for me listening to that old recording, it it is a world away. It's you know it's way before the war. It seems like another age. But we did meet two of the the original members of the group. One in Berlin. And another, so he, and he was one of the, the so-called sort of Aryan uh, contingent who stayed in Germany. There were three and three, and the three Jewish members set off and sort of started this um, following ensemble kind of successor group that went initially to Vienna, and then there was the Anschluss. So they had to move, they went to Paris, and then they started literally going all around the world. And um, one of them... On hearing of the death of his father, he was Polish and he'd come like so many people to Berlin and where which seemed to be the great citadel of culture and optimism and and promise a city of promise really in the 1920s and um, he'd come from Poland where there'd been the pogroms and all that sort of thing and when he heard I think it was 1942 that his father had died he said guys I've got to, I've got to leave now and do what my father always wanted me to do which is to become a cantor in a synagogue. And so he ended he ended up in Palm Springs in California as one of the most best-known cantors in, um, in America. Yeah. And we were out there, funny enough, doing something with Tim Rice uh, in, in, in Palm Springs. And, uh, and I just looked him up in the telephone book. And we went round there and... and, and you know, sang for him and with him some of those old songs. So it, they, they've been a really big influence on, on us and on, on me, just their approach to things. Extraordinary. It's a fantastic, very moving story there's Amongst um, your many highlights of your career um, is logging the highest ever performance via vocal group in a hot air balloon. What's that all about? <laughs> Oh gosh, yeah. Well, that was there was a, um, a, a huge festival called Voices, uh, which was already quite big in uh, in Holland in 1988, and then an even larger sort of manifestation of it in 1990, where uh, a great enthusiastic agent managed to assemble all all the sort of I was going to say leading, I don't want to sort of blow our trumpet, but the, the, the very active vocal groups um, from around the world. Uh, and we performed together and and there was TV, big TV special and so on. And we launched that 19, Voices 1990 by going up in a hot air balloon over Holland because they're just the four of us. I mean, there were lots of a cappella groups involved, but they were just the four of us, so we could fit into one of those baskets. We'd, none of us had ever been up before in a hot air balloon. And then we were sort of um, not quite broadcasting, so yeah, sort of broadcasting from up there. And then we just kind of disappeared into, into the night uh, and ended up in, you know, on our basket on its side in a field somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And literally... 
there was, even though it was 1990, which is in modern times, there was a Dutchman wearing clogs <laughs> who came up to us and said, where have, you, where have you come from? He was wearing clogs. So there we are. <laughs> and you played some um, amazing venues throughout the world. Any special memories that stick out? Oh, goodness me. Uh, well, um, huh, I suppose, well, one of the most um, beautiful, in a way, uh, although it's slightly bizarre, it's said about the, in the, the, the Ile de la Madeleine of Quebec, uh, having this sort of winching, the tiny little winching station on the beach. Well, in um, Camps Bay, around the corner from Cape Town, South Africa, uh, there is a lovely theatre right on the water's edge that used to be the kind of, win again, the winching station, I suppose, for what was the tram that went over the, uh, the, 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 the pass that goes from that town over into Cape Town. And it used to be on a kind of ratchet, funicular kind of system. Uh, and then when the, the when it was changed and they didn't, no longer needed it, it was turned into a theatre. And the, the upstairs above the theatre was the flat where visiting uh, companies could, with quite large place, visiting companies could stay. So that we went there a couple of times. That's a really rather spectacular. The, the, the building itself is a bit unprepossessing in a way, but it was just the location was fantastic. Your penultimate choice uh, on this edition of Music of My First Love, Michael, is the theme from The Third Man. Tell me about this one. Well, I, I don't know. It just has always got to me. I remember in my granny's house, uh, which is where my sister in Cardiff still lives, um, there was an old 78 player and there were these old 78 records. And this was one that just caught my imagination when I was really, really very, very little. I just adored this thing. And, of course, it's actually, uh, as you say, it's the Harry Lyme theme, which is the theme from The Third Man, which is that movie set in Vienna um, just after the war uh, with Orson Welles. Just a very atmospheric um, film, which I didn't know about at the time. And we as a group of go very regularly to Vienna. We were there last year. We're going to be going there again in, in, to open an acapella festival uh, in uh, the beginning of November. And it just has always stuck with me. And I don't know, it's just something about it that I can't really put my finger on. That's the whole point, isn't it, about a really good piece of music. Mm -hmm. There comes a point where the music has to do the talking. <laughs> don't mind me saying but in 2022 you turned 66 yeah as you uh, get older does it get harder to maintain the voice well it's funny you should say that i th there are some slight changes but no i don't think so as i said earlier i think if anything it sounds it's, it sounds totally counterintuitive but I, I think in many ways my voice is better now it's more even 
uh, across. But it, the, the range is probably getting a little bit less wide. Um, but I think what it, the range as it, you know, what I have there is a bit more kind of versatile mm. than it was when I started out. Tell me about your involvement uh, for the Voices series for the Atlantic 7 label. Oh yes, that will. That's that's a while back now, but that 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 was um, one of these library uh, albums. So people may not be aware, but if you watch a I don't know uh, a, a documentary and it has a swan taking off from a lake, then the producer of that documentary will be saying, "We will need a bit of music for the swan taking off from the lake." It needs to be 20 seconds long um, and it needs to be swan taking off from a lake. And then the, the, the researcher or his assistant will be able to go and look up swan taking off from a lake music, 20 seconds. And somebody will have produced a piece that they can then, that then can be used for that snippet or whatever it might be, a plane landing or people chatting or, or whatever you whenever you hear some music underneath a visual image and uh so uh yeah i was involved in writing a couple of titles for for that series and in fact um my uh, my other sister i haven't mentioned who also has a connection with france um has been married to a frenchman for many many years she she said, I've been watching the television and there's an advert on there where there's the you see the upper torso of a of a, a young woman, and then uh, from the left of the sort of camera left sort of thing, up comes a guy, and he kisses her under the armpit, and she said that really sounds like you singing. And I said, how can that possibly be? But sure enough, they had used, you know, the producer said, I need a piece of music for somebody kissing a nude woman under the armpit, uh, please. And, and, but in French. And the producer had come up with my, my, my little snippet. And then that, that then did appear on UK TV but it was it was somebody else. It was something like I think it was Nat King Cole. It was exactly the same the same um, bit of film for I think it was Dove deodorant. It was right. a deodorant effort. Yeah. So yes, yeah, no, I'd forgotten about that. Your final choice, uh, Michael, is from Messrs Crosby and Sinatra and from oh. High Society. Well, did you ever? What a great way to end. Well, I, you know, you make it so hard, really, Andrew. But you're right to give us only ten numbers because you know, there's all that Frank Sinatra and all that Bing Crosby, which I I do a kind of Bing thing. Uh, I really can, you know, sound like Bing if I if I put my mind to it. And in fact, funny enough, you mentioned earlier David Bowie. You're saying about you know, we used to listen to David Bowie. Yeah. Um, uh, the the impressionist John Culshaw, who does Dead Ringers on BBC, yeah. um, we, we we were doing a charity thing. He was he was doing you know, a, a read, few readings, and 
and I was it was a Christmas thing and he was he, he was doing a brilliant thing from Christmas uh, a Christmas carol um with all the characters being sort of you know modern so Scrooge was Donald Trump and so on he did yeah. absolute fantastic tour de force and I did my sort of recreation of Bing Crosby doing White Christmas and he came up to me after afterwards he said listen I don't do any vo- singing impressions at all except for one he said I can do David Bowie doing um um what's it called Peace on Earth drummer boy yeah uh, yeah and he said why don't we do that together so sure enough the following Christmas we did a couple of we did a couple of charity things where uh I I was I was Bowie I mean I was Bing Bang. and he was Bowie <laughs> So um, yeah, and and I just thought oh, I've only got you know I haven't got enough tracks. So you know the obvious thing was to do one with Frank yeah. and Bing together, and it's got all that fantastic cross talk and yeah. Again, it's just fun. It's just wonderful music. Cole Porter, you know, you can. What more could you hope for? There's so much I wanted to talk to you about and mention, uh, but you can't cover everything in the time allowed. So let me ask you this: as you look back over a, a 40 plus year career what experiences stand out to you and that you can look back at with with huge pride Ooh, well um i've covered some of them yeah i think i one of the most extraordinary things uh what i mentioned about the unveiling of the, this new technology of the compact disc um that was uh, and how it was backed by really the iconic conductor of the age was um, Herbert von Karajan. And it was while we were in Austria, in Salzburg, um, that we, his preferred sound engineer was uh, a great supporter of ours. And through him, we went one day and we sang for Karajan. As it happens, we sang the overture to the Barbara Seville, which you played earlier, mm. in our tribute to the comedian harmonists. And we thought that it would be the right thing to do for a big orchestral conductor just to, you know, sing an orchestral piece. And uh, it, he absolutely loved it. And that was a long time ago, but that stuck with me for a very long time. That's, you know, that was a... To get to get the approval of somebody from that world, because mm. as you, when you played yeah yeah, I was thinking in all this talk about my becoming an opera singer, uh, you know that's what that's what it eventually became. It became you know a voice that I, does all sorts of different things. Mm. Uh, so I think that would stand out. Yeah. Probably. Um. What's the future for you and for Cantabile? Well, um, the you know we're now finally coming out of. Uh, the, the sort of the, the uh, consequences of the pandemic, uh, touch wood. I actually had my my latest booster only yesterday, um, and and but also what and also for us we're wrestling with the consequences of Brexit because much of our work has historically been in Europe. Mm. So things in the in the past few months have been quiet and they would otherwise have been in the equivalent few months a couple of years ago but there are there are all sorts of things there are all kinds of recording things that we're getting going um we're off to um 
we're off. We are off to Europe for for a number of projects between now and the end of the year. So it's yeah, it's it it goes on. You know, it goes on, and it and it and it continues to be a source of great joy. I've really enjoyed tonight, Mike. Thank you very very much. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Have you heard? It's in the stars. Next July we collide with Mars. Well, did you ever? What a swell party, a swell party, a swell elegant, elegant party. You've been listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where Cardiff-born baritone Michael Stefan has been choosing ten of his favourite songs. I'm Andrew Wolfe, and join me again soon when someone else chooses ten of their favourite tracks on another edition of Music Was My First Love.